I enjoy Sudoku puzzles. But recently, I've completely changed the way that I play Sudoku. Uh, previously, I would play them very mechanically. Particularly if it was a really difficult Sudoku puzzle, I'd go through every cell in the grid and use pencil markings to note down every possible number that would go in that cell. Maybe if you play Sudoku, you'd do something similar. And it would take a long time to do that. And if I'm honest, that's a pretty boring way to play Sudoku. But eventually, usually at least, I'd be able to work out which numbers go where. But I don't do Sudoku like that any longer. Because one day, I was on YouTube and uh, watching Wrexham highlights, as you might imagine what I do on YouTube often. And uh, when you watch a video on YouTube, it comes up with these recommendations. And for some reason, YouTube recommended me that I watch a video of somebody doing Sudoku. Well, it didn't seem like the most exciting way to spend uh, 23 minutes, which is, I think, how long this video lasted for. But I was intrigued why somebody would put up a video like that. So I clicked the link and watched the video. And I really enjoyed it. Here was a puzzle. And it was an impossible Sudoku puzzle. I would never have been able to solve this. But this guy, who'd only just seen it when he sort of started his camera and then brought this, uh, uh, this uh, puzzle up, uh, he was able to solve it. And what's more, he didn't use any of those pencil markings, that kind of really boring way that I used to use to solve the puzzle. What he did instead was he looked at the puzzle and he understood its internal logic. I didn't even know there was really much of an internal logic. And then he solved it. And he had a great time doing so. Uh, he loved this puzzle. He was so enthusiastic about this Sudoku puzzle. And, and every time he found a sort of little clever part of the puzzle that the, that the puzzle maker had put in to help you to, to solve it, he got even more excited. Five million people have watched this video, and everyone loves it, because how excited uh, he gets by it. And it made me wanting to start solve Sudoku puzzles as well. I'd got a bit bored with them, if I'd honest. I hadn't done a Sudoku for a while. And what I needed to do, of course, was to understand how those puzzles worked. I knew the basics, of course. I, I knew that each column and each row and each big box were made up of the numbers one to nine. I knew that. You couldn't even start a puzzle without knowing that. But I needed to know more than the basics. I needed to understand what was in the mind of the creator of the puzzle. And I tell you that story because a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, and I would imagine probably a lot of us here this morning, whether we're in the building or watching online, for a lot of us, the Old Testament can be a real puzzle. And like the way I used to approach Sudoku, with a, with a lot of grind, we can perhaps feel that we're getting to the bottom of what the Bible says, what the Old Testament teaches. But if we're honest, perhaps sometimes when we read the Old Testament in particular, it can seem, well, a bit boring, a bit not really relevant or exciting. And the idea of poring over hard parts of the Old Testament and having a great time doing it might seem almost as weird to you as holding a battery-powered mug. But it need not be like that. Because... What I discovered as I watched this YouTube video is that the best Sudoku puzzles are not put together by a computer. 
They're put together by a real person. And in order to understand and to solve that Sudoku puzzle, I needed to understand the mind of the Creator. And it's exactly the same with our Bible. To understand it properly, we can't just read it mechanically. We need to understand the mind of its Creator. In other words, we need to understand the mind of God. It's His Word. Now, when I was trying to learn how to do Sudoku this, this new way, this, this exciting way, I, I learned by understanding the principles in some easy puzzles uh, and to see how those principles actually applied not just to that one puzzle, but to, but to lots of different puzzles. And that gave me the tools that I needed to, to try and start uh, doing some hard Sudoku puzzles by myself. And in a sense, that's what we're going to try and do this morning. We're going to look at some of the more familiar Old Testament stories. We've read one of them, uh, in at least part of one of them, in the story of Jonah. But we're going to look at some others too. Uh, the sorts of stories that probably all of us remember from Sunday school. And, and very simply, we're going to see how those stories work. We're going to look into the mind of the author of those stories. And to see what God is saying to us. And I hope that as we do that, we'll see that what makes those stories tick also makes other parts of the Bible tick as well. And that the things that we can see in those stories will help us to see things perhaps in more obscure or more difficult or more challenging parts of the Bible. So there's three questions that I want to ask and I hope answer with you uh, this morning. And the first one is this, how should we read the Old Testament? How should we read the Old Testament? The Old Testament takes up two-thirds of our Bible, yet only a tiny portion, probably, of our Bible reading and perhaps even our preaching. Now, of course, we do remember those Old Testament stories from Sunday school, Noah and his ark, Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, David killing Goliath. We know those stories, but what are we supposed to do with those stories? Now, I chose those three stories almost at random. They were literally the first ones that came to mind in the providence of God. But if you look carefully, there's a link between those three stories. Did you spot the link? That each of those Old Testament heroes, Noah, Moses, David... There was something similar about all of them, all of those three stories. They all trusted God in difficult, circumstance, in difficult circumstances, and salvation came as a result. Noah trusted God when God asked him to build the ark, and he and his family were all saved from the flood. Moses trusted God when God asked him to go to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, and Moses and the Israelites were freed from oppression and slavery. David trusted God when he was faced with a fiercest warrior of a generation or more. And all the Israelites were saved from Philistine tyranny. Can you see? They all trusted God in difficult circumstances and salvation came as a, as a result. So is that how we should read the Old Testament? At looking for heroes like Noah and Moses and David that we could emulate? Just as Noah and Moses and David trusted God, so we should trust God too. Is that what the Old Testament teaches us? Well, it's not a bad place to start. There are plenty of heroes in the Old Testament for us to emulate. 
there are plenty of villains to warn us too. But to treat the Old Testament as providing us with models to emulate doesn't really do the Old Testament justice. That's how we might approach a, a book of Greek myths or Aesop's fables. And the Bible's not that. So let's get a bit more theological with our three stories. Yes, they do give us a, a human model, Noah, Moses, David, to try and emulate. But they give us more than that, don't they? Because these three stories are not just about Noah and Moses and David. They're about the God that Noah and Moses and David trusted in. And when we read these stories in the Bible, we don't simply get the impression that Noah saved his family. No, the Bible's verdict is that God saved Noah's family, but used Noah to do it. God saved the Israelites out of Egypt, but used Moses to do it. And it was God who saved the Israelites from Goliath and the Philistines, but used David to do it. And that changes the stories quite a bit, doesn't it? it there's no longer Greek myths or, or Aesop's fables. There's a truth here now in these stories. And the truth in the Old Testament is about God, just as much as it's about the human characters. And we start to read the Old Testament in a different way then when we realize that God is at the heart of it. This Old Testament now, this for some people obscure and, and dusty book, becomes a place where we discover who God is and what God does. Where God is at the center and not human beings. That's a radical thought for many people, isn't it? You see... The emphasis is now shifted. The key virtue, if we are to emulate a virtue, is not that we emulate Noah's carpentry skills, or Moses' negotiating skills, or David's military skills. Oh no, we don't emulate those, we realize that. It's their faith in God that we're to emulate, if anything. The God who made us and who rules the universe. So the Old Testament then is, is a book about him, with, with him at the center. And, and how we should respond to him, particularly as we've just read, in faith, in belief. But we can go a bit further still, I think. You see, if we were to read the Old Testament like that, to see what it teaches us about the God who made us, then we would be reading the Bible, the Old Testament, unlike any secular critics who read the Old Testament. But we would also be reading the Old Testament no differently from Jews or Muslims or others from those monotheistic religions who read the Old Testament. And however much Christianity has in common with those religions, Christianity is also very different from both. So is there a distinctively Christian way to read the Old Testament? Certainly there is. Take those three stories again. Noah and his ark, Moses and the Red Sea, David killing Goliath. Now they give us three human beings to emulate. Uh, we've seen that they teach us about a God who's behind everything they do. But there's something else that these stories have in common, aren't there? Uh, they're stories about salvation. On each occasion, the people were in danger. It might have been a flood. It might have been the Egyptians. It might have been the Philistines. But on each occasion, the people were in danger, and God raised up a man 
just one man, to be the means by which the people could be rescued. Through Noah, all his family were saved. Through Moses and David, all the Israelites were saved. So there's another pattern here, isn't there? And not just here. The Old Testament is full of stories that teach us just the same truth. Think of some other stories you learned in Sunday school. Joseph, who saved the Israelites from the famine. Joshua, who saved them from the Canaanites. Gideon, who saved them from the Midianites. Samson, who saved them from the Philistines. The Philistines. Listen to too much American preaching online. Uh, it happens too often for it to be a coincidence. Story after story after story in the Old Testament teaches us that God saves a whole people by raising up one man to defeat the enemy. Now, for lots of you here this morning, this isn't new. You know this. Some of you have taught it yourself in Sunday school lessons to others. But my point here is not merely to remind you that there are stories like this in the Old Testament and lots of them. I'm here to remind you that this is a pattern throughout the Old Testament. And when you see a pattern, you start to look out for the pattern. If you don't mind me using Moses as a little illustration at the moment, uh, Moses loves numbers. And one of the things he loves about numbers is they make patterns. There are certain things that when you see lots of numbers, you then expect certain things afterwards. He looks out for those patterns. He discovered that there are junction numbers on the motorway that go from, um, what, 45 and up or down, depending on which way you turn. You can look out for them. That you can look out for numbers on houses, odd numbers on one side of the road, even numbers on the other, looking at these patterns. And once you start uh, knowing that there's a pattern there, you knew all about those patterns already, of course, and you start looking for them, you see them everywhere. Of course you do. So much so, perhaps, that for those of you who own very many, many years ago found these patterns, you've almost forgotten about them. You're not even interested in them particularly anymore. But for Moses, they're fascinating. And maybe we've forgotten about some of these patterns in the Bible too. They're no longer interesting to us. We no longer learn the lessons of them. We no longer try and work out the patterns for ourselves. Or, or notice the occasions like the house on Sybil Street that's an even number on the odd side of the road. Have you noticed that? Moses has. So let's remind ourselves and look again at these patterns. Let's read the Old Testament actively looking for stories where God saves a whole people by raising up one man. Well, we've seen a lot already. We perhaps thought that perhaps we need to be looking for these patterns, but there's, there's actually more to the patterns than even we've said. Because we've said that God raises a whole uh, saves a whole people by raising up one man, but there's something about the man in every occasion that we read here in the Old Testament. They're heroes, yes, but they're flawed heroes. Let's start with Noah. There's no question that Noah was a great man of faith. 
Uh, Genesis 6 tells us he was a righteous man who walked with God. How did Noah end his days? The last story we read of Noah in the Bible is that he'd got so drunk that he'd passed out on his own sofa, well, in his own tent at least, in f- completely naked and in full view of the rest of his family. It's probably not the story that Noah would wanted to have been remembered by. But that's how Noah's story ends in the Bible. Let's take Moses. He's known, of course, for taking God's people out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into the Promised Land. And like Noah, there's no question that Moses was a faithful man. The Bible describes Moses as someone who knew God face to face. There was no one like him, the Bible says. And yet Moses never made it into the Promised Land at all. Uh, You see, part way to the Promised Land... uh, the people of Israel were struggling because there was no water at a place called Meribah. And at that crucial juncture in the journey to the promised land, Moses stopped trusting God and he started trusting in himself. He disobeyed God and he then took the credit for himself for what God had done. So as a result, the last story that we read about Moses in the Old Testament is his failure to enter the promised land and why again perhaps not what Moses would want to be remembered for and let's take David he's known for defeating Goliath and and the Philistines and like Noah and Moses there's no question that David was a righteous man the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart And yet David, too, is a flawed hero. On one occasion, David stopped trusting in God and started trusting in his own generals and his army. On another more well-known occasion, he took a liking to a married woman, Bathsheba. She was married to Uriah, a well-known warrior hero in David's army. And when David got Bathsheba pregnant, he then had Uriah put in the front of the battle so that he would be killed, and he was. Now, to say the least, that's not the sort of behavior that you would expect from a righteous leader of God's people. The last story that we read of David uh, in the Bible is of Adonijah, his son, who attempts to usurp David's throne, a problem that only occurs because David wants to pass the throne on to one of Bathsheba's sons. And as that story is told, the main surviving characters of that moment of David's sin, great sin, are all brought back together. As that story is told, the characters in the room are David, Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet, who was the one who exposed David's sin. It's almost as if the Bible writers want to draw our attention to David's failings as it rounds out David's story. Now, these are not the only flawed heroes in the Bible. Joseph, who saved the Israelites from the famine, could also be boastful and immodest. Gideon, whose tiny army saved the Israelites from the Midianites, struggled to trust God in the first place. He wouldn't obey God at first, would he? He ended up worshipping an ephod, of all things, instead of the living God. 
And what about Samson, who saved God's people from the Philistines? Well, he's more for than he is hero, isn't he? Yet somehow he's the one that Israel put their hope in. So while we've already seen that story after story of the Old Testament teaches us that God saves a whole people by raising up one man to defeat the enemy, we've now seen that there's something missing from that summary. These men that God used to save his people were severely flawed heroes. And their flaws mattered in the stories. I mean, after all, we're talking about a pattern here, something that occurs page after page after page. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, hang on a minute. These people of Israel seem to need rescuing quite a lot. And they do. That's part of the point. It's why the Old Testament seems to keep going round in circles. God rescues his people. People get themselves in a mess. God raises up a hero to save them. Hero fails. People fail and get in a mess. God raises up a rescuer to save them. And he does. Rescuer fails. People fail. And so it goes on and on and on. That's the pattern. There's a great video online of a guy who, with a great effort, saves a sheep from a ditch. Maybe some of you have seen this. So he pulls this sheep out. And the grateful sheep shakes itself off, bounds off into the distance, looking, if sheep can, very thankful, and within 10 seconds jumps right back into the ditch. That's God's people. That's the Old Testament. It's us. And the flawed heroes can't help with that. The flood destroys the wicked, but Noah's family who were saved weren't much better. The Red Sea destroys the Egyptians, but those who were saved weren't much better. David destroys the Philistine army, but his kingdom fell apart because of his own sin. Page after page after page of the Old Testament, we find a people that need rescuing, a God who wants to save them, a successes of flawed heroes God uses to save them. But then we're back to square one all over again with a people who need saving. So if that's how we read the Old Testament, we're now ready to answer our second question. How should we read passages like Jonah chapter 1 that we read earlier? How should we look at this book? You see, this story of Jonah is a very well-known one. For some people, it's a very well-loved story. It's certainly powerful and evocative, isn't it? That's why we remember it so vividly. But for many other people, this story of Jonah is just plain and simple weird. In fact, many people view the whole Old Testament as just weird. A story that makes believing in Christianity really hard. A man being swallowed whole by a whale before being spat out three days later. That's just weird. Yes, it is. Which is one of the reasons why there's only one story like this in the Bible. It's supposed to be weird in that sense. But what do we do with weird stories like this? Well, the book of Jonah is not about the whale. We should read the book of Jonah using those lessons that we've just described already. Let me remind you of the story. It starts by God calling Jonah to go and preach to the city of Nineveh and tell them about their sin. 
Jonah, of course, refuses. He jumps on the ship going in the opposite direction. And God sends this terrific storm onto the boat. And Jonah realizes that he's responsible for the storm. He tells the sailors to throw him overboard where he's swallowed by this great fish. We think of as a whale. The Bible just describes it as a great fish. And three days later, this fish coughs him up onto dry land. Finally, then, he does obey God. He goes to Nineveh. The entire city repents of their sin and trusts in God. Joseph could quite possibly be the most successful preacher of the entire Old Testament if you were to view it by the the number of people who repented after his messages. But instead of the story finishing there on a note of triumph, the story finishes with Jonah complaining against God and being seen as a petulant, graceless man who would rather have seen God send fire and brimstone down onto Nineveh than he would have seen Nineveh repent and believe. And here's the thing. That for most of us, when we think of the story of Jonah, or maybe even when we were taught the story of Jonah, we learned the story about Jonah and the whale. We, we dealt with Jonah's chapters 1, 2, and 3, but we didn't finish on this low note of petulant Jonah complaining against God. And when we read our Bibles, we're not really sure what to do with that bit. So even in this, even in this story, this very familiar story, there are bits of it that perhaps don't make all that much sense to us. Why tell us this stuff about Jonah? What good does it do to us? Well, I hope that we can see that this story of Jonah follows the pattern that we've already uncovered. Because at its heart, this is a story about God rescuing people through a flawed hero. In fact, even though this story is only four chapters long, there are three episodes about salvation in this one story. The first salvation happens to the sailors in the boat, doesn't it? They're convinced that they'll drown. And they know they're sailors, they're professionals. They're convinced that they'll drown. But when Jonah is thrown overboard, the storm stops. And they're saved. A flawed hero. And a saved crew. When their story ends in chapter 1, verse 16, they're now trusting and fearing God. They're offering a sacrifice to the Lord in heaven. They knew it wasn't Jonah who saved them. They knew it was God. And the second person who saved is, of course, Jonah himself. And this part of the story is a bit different from the, from the pattern. It's the, it's the even number on the odd side of the road that draws our attention and makes us stop and think. Because now the hero is a whale. Or a great, great fish, at least. And as the biblical account is keen to point out in chapter 1, verse 17, this great fish was sent by God. And Jonah, of course, in the belly of the fish of all places, realizes that it's God who saved him, and he too offers his prayers of thanks. And the third salvation story in, this, uh, short, in these short chapters is, of course, the Ninevites themselves. They hear Jonah's message, and according to chapter 3, verse 5, they believe it. Actually, chapter 3, verse 5 doesn't say that. Chapter 3, verse 5 doesn't say they believe Jonah's message. Chapter 3, verse 5 doesn't say they believe Jonah. Can you guess what chapter 3, verse 5 says? They believed God. 
They believed God. The king of Nineveh calls on the people to call to God for mercy because he knew that it wasn't Jonah who would save them. It would be God himself. And of course, that's what God did. Why? Because that's what God does. He's a saving God. And as we've seen, oh, that the story would finish there. But it doesn't. There's the final chapter, chapter 4. An unwanted chapter, a negative chapter, a chapter where Jonah moans and complains and displays all of his flaws as he moans that God has saved the Ninevites instead of sending disaster on them. He's petty, he's self-centered, he even complains that the plant under which he's found shelter and shade has died and he makes that his number one complaint to God. The God who has just rescued him from the bottom of the sea through a miracle. The God who's just saved tens of thousands of Ninevites from their sin. Chief at the top of Jonah's list is a complaint that a plant has died. And the book of Jonah ends. Do you remember how the story of David ended? By pointing back to his sin. And the story of Moses ended by pointing back to his sin. And the story of Noah ended by pointing to his sin. How does the story of Jonah end? By pointing to his sin. And the last words, I'm going to paraphrase, but the last words in the book of Jonah are God saying this to Jonah. You and I are different. We're not the same. You pity that plant and wish that it was saved. I pity the Ninevites. And I've saved them. You see, in Jonah chapter 2, he was saved by the whale. But in chapter 4, he needs saving all over again. From his own misery and his own self-centeredness. The story follows the pattern. It's not a story about a whale or a fish. It's not a story about the the Ninevites really or about Jonah it's a story about God who sends who sends an unlikely rescuer to save an undeserving people the sailors the Ninevites and Jonah himself so how do we read the Old Testament well we've seen something of that how do we read Stories like the book of Jonah, by applying the pattern and seeing how it fits, and maybe even where it slightly doesn't, with the whale. And now we need to ask a final question, which maybe some of you are already asking in your minds. And the final question is this. What use has all this for me? What use has all this for me? And it's a great question. After all, what's the point in reading any part of the Bible if we don't see how it applies to us? So what's all this got to do with us? Well, as we've seen already, one of the big mistakes we often make when we go away and read our Bibles is to think that we're supposed to be the heroes and we're to go off and perform our own heroics. Some of you older ones might even have been taught that in Sunday school. Be a Noah who trusts God even when those around you mock. 
Be a Moses and humbly speak out for God, even in a hostile environment. Be a David and trust in God, even when it seems hopeless. And what about these heroes' flaws, we might ask? What did we learn about that in Sunday school? Well, to some, the answer's obvious. The warning stories show us what not to do. Don't get drunk like Noah. Don't take credit for God's actions like Moses did. Don't murder or commit adultery like David did. Now, of course, there's a lot of truth in that. But these stories are not merely moral tales to tell us how we should live. The message is much more direct and startling that says, follow David's good points and don't follow his bad points. Anyone could tell you that. You don't need the Bible to tell you that. Now, what the Bible is saying to us is this, that if we're to put ourselves in this story, if we're to see where we fit in the story of David killing Goliath, or Noah building the ark, or Moses taking the people across the Red Sea, if we're to put ourselves in the story, we're not Noah. We're not Abraham. We're not David. You are not the heroes, and nor am I. We're the people who need saving. Do you know that? When you read those stories, is that what you remember? We're not the hero. We're the people in need. And we miss it. We're so arrogant. We're so self-centered, just like Jonah was. We think those stories are all about us. They're not. Or not in that sense. You see, God's message to us, not just in the Old Testament, but throughout the Bible, is this. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned, rather, and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. We all need rescuing. It's not just Bonnie Tyler who needs a hero. You need one too. And what do we need rescuing from? Well, those Old Testament uh, stories were full of villains, as the best stories are, the true ones in the Bible and the fictional ones that we see today. The Canaanites, the Midianites, the Ammonites in the Bibles, but behind them are greater enemies. There often is in the fictional stories today as well, aren't there? An enemy behind the enemy. Christian theology often summarizes that as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's certainly the experience in the stories that we've read. The world seems so opposed to God, quite literally in the story of Noah, in, through Pharaoh in the story of Moses, through the Philistines and Goliath in the story of David. Yes, the world is opposed to God. The world is an enemy in that sense. Flesh, well, that's our own human nature, and we need rescuing from that, don't we? You may never have got drunk and naked in a tent in front of your family, but you find it all too easy to relate to Noah's lack of self-control, don't you? I do. You may not have failed to give God the glory when finding water in the desert, as Moses did, but you failed to give God the glory on countless thousands of other occasions, haven't you? I know I have. You may not have committed murder and adultery as David did, but you've harmed people who only want to help you. You've lusted after people or things that God has given to others. Haven't you? I know I have. And you may not have sat on a shriveled plant in the desert as Jonah did and railed against God, but you've accused God of treating you unfairly 
when he's only done you good, haven't you? I know I have. And it's the story of the Bible that so many miss. That we are in desperate need of rescuing. That we can't rescue ourselves. And God wants to save us. But as we read the Old Testament, if that's all we were to read, you might end up concluding, well, that's all very well, but God isn't doing a very good job of saving these people, you might think. Because they're just getting back into trouble again and need saving all over again. It's endless, you might think. Well, yes, the Bible does pretty much tell us that every hero is a flawed hero and that every saved people just ends up going back into their old sin. Yes, that is a lesson that you could perhaps conclude from the Old Testament stories that we've talked about together. There's never going to be a king or a prince or a warrior or a pop star or a politician or any other purely human leader who can rescue us once and for all. And yet, Despite that succession of failure after failure after failure after failure, the Old Testament does assure us that God will provide a rescuer once and for all. But of course, we don't see that rescuer in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's about promise, not fulfillment. So, of course, what the Old Testament is doing through those flawed heroes is pointing us forward, pointing us to Jesus. That's the great goal of the divine author, to point us to him, to show us our need of him, and show us what he'll be like. Like Noah, he'll be a righteous man. Like Moses, he'll know God face to face. Like David, he'll be a man after God's own heart. Like Jonah, he'll be a prophet of righteousness. And Jesus is like them, all of them, the best bits of them. But he's also not like them. Because unlike Noah, he won't lack self-control. Unlike Moses, he won't even for a moment stop trusting God. Unlike David, he won't put his own desires and lusts ahead of what's right and, and best for others. Unlike Jonah, he won't resent God for saving an undeserving people. No, Jesus is not like them. Just as God told Jonah, I'm not like you. And that helps us, doesn't it, that verse at the end of Jonah then, to understand why Jesus is different from these flawed heroes. Why is Jesus not like us? He's not like us because God is not like us, and Jesus is God. Yes, he's a human being, 100% human, but equally, he's 100% divine. He's the God-man. So Jesus kind of rolls up all of these Old Testament stories and delivers what we all need and have been hoping for. It's true in terms of the big picture. It's true in terms of some of the details. Now I don't have time to go through them all. But think of this, Noah ended his life naked and with shame heaped on him. And so, of course, did Jesus. The Bible goes out of its way to tell us that Jesus hung naked on the cross. And the old masters may have painted a loincloth onto Jesus to protect his modesty, but neither Pontius Pilate or the Roman soldiers offered him any such luxury. It's true of the details in Jonah's story too. Jonah went down into the depths. He describes it himself as being in the grave. And where 
How long was he there in that grave in the belly of the fish? Three days, just like Jesus. There are other more important details too. Details that form a, a pattern with these Old Testament stories. Again, we, we, we could spend all week on this. Don't worry, I'm drawing to a conclusion. But let's not forget the sacrifice that was involved here. As Moses crossed the Red Sea, the people of Israel sacrificed that lamb and spread its blood over the doorposts. You know this. Jonah was sacrificed from the boat, wasn't he, to save the sailors. And even in David's story, there's a sacrifice there too, in a slightly different way. This is the even number on the odd side of the road again. Because where's the sacrifice in the story of David and Bathsheba and all of that? Is there an innocent one who dies? Yes, there is. Uriah the Hittite, who's a good man, who serves faithfully in David's army. And David attempts to sacrifice Uriah in order to deal with his sin. Uriah the Hittite is a sacrifice in that story. But let me ask you this question. Is Uriah the Hittite, who's a good man, and, and in the context of the story has done nothing wrong, is his sacrifice enough to save David from his sin? No, it's not. And nor was Jonah's sacrifice enough because God didn't accept Jonah's sacrifice, if you like, or that sacrifice of Jonah because God rescued him and spat him out. Even Moses and David in different ways offer themselves as sacrifices to God. Did you know that? David, we talked already briefly about the story of the census where David starts trusting in his own army and his own strength instead of God. At the end of that story, God confronts him with his sin and David says this, don't, don't punish the nation, punish me. He's offering himself as a sacrifice. God turns him down. Moses on the mountain, he goes to get the Ten Commandments and when he comes down, the people are worshipping the golden calf and God is angry. Do you know what Moses says? Don't punish the people, punish me instead. God turns him down. You see, there are sacrifices all the way through this Old Testament story, but none of them are sufficient, none of them are enough. But in Jesus, all this comes together. He is the representative that can rescue all of God's people. He is the sacrifice who is accepted. Instead of being the flawed hero, Jesus is the hero who carries our flaws. So what's all this got to do with you? Well, you're not the hero, and nor am I. We're the problem. We're the ones who need saving. It's Jesus who is the hero. Everyone else thought they could see Jesus' flaws. They treated him like a criminal. They accused him of all sorts of things of the worst of sins. But he was the true hero. And remember, it was his blood shed for us. He died in our place. And it was only those who got on Noah's Ark who were saved from the flood. 
while the others drowned. It was only those who followed Moses through the Red Sea who escaped from Egypt. It was only those who appointed David as their representative against Goliath who enjoyed freedom from oppression. It was only those who believed Jonah's message who repented and received mercy. And it's only those who put their faith in Christ who are saved from their sin. What's it got to do with you? Me? Everything. Because how we respond to these stories and the ultimate reality that these stories point us to will determine our eternal destiny. For some of us this morning, that means thanking God, not just for the stories, but for the one whom the stories point to. For some, perhaps, either here or watching online, it means bowing the knee for the first time and choosing to trust in Christ, to repent, to believe, to follow Him, and to see Him save us fully once and for all.